Welcome back. We are at the Cesar Chavez diversity event and we are excited to have this brilliant panel in front of us. So let me do some introductions. I'm Kathy Fairbanks, the host of the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour on Voice America Talk Radio. And you can hear that show on Thursdays, 1 p.m. Pacific. And today we are honored to have our guest experts and we're really talking about an important topic and that particular topic is serving a diverse population. How do we all play well in the sandbox together? That's what we're really distilling it down to. So I want to introduce our guest here to my far left. We have, and well, hold on one second, I'll make sure I get this right, Didi Devine. Mm -hmm. Welcome. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you. And here next we have Dr. Buffy Wooten. Mm -hmm. And next we have Dr. Natasha Mendoza. And then we have Amy, and I want to get your, Dar one more time. Darpino. Darpino. Amy Darpino. So Amy is going to kind of lead this off and give an idea of what this serving a diverse population would go for. And Amy and I are just going to work back and forth and really pull out some information that the community might be interested in, as well as our listeners. All right, go for it. Great. Thank you so much. So I'm going to start off with, you know, there are so many reasons that people might not seek treatment. They may not come in for medical care or behavioral health care. There could be a fear about what they might experience. They might have had prior discrimination, um, insensitive treatment, and unwelcoming sterile environments. So my question to you is how can we create welcoming environments so people feel comfortable from that first point of contact, whether it's a phone call or just walking into the office, that might help them feel safe and secure and want to actually um, continue with whatever treatment that they need. Are we starting with me? Sure. <laughs> okay. We'll start with you. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so previously on the, the panel, my role was to discuss um, LGBTQIA2 plus communities. And so with respect to making um, spaces more comfortable, I think it's about uh, being real with ourselves about what our own biases are uh, with respect to gender and minority or gender and sexual minority status. And um, being educated and knowledgeable about the various um, types of language that are used for gender and sexual minority status. And um, being careful not to microaggress. So we talked a little bit about that. Um, we've talked a lot about it throughout the morning, actually. So a microaggression being sort of an, an unintentional affront of, of somebody. So for example, if we're talking about somebody who's transgender, entering a space, then it would be particularly important to try not to misgender a person, or if you're not sure about their gender, to ask them what their pronouns are, or to um, just in general try to be more open and affirming and inclusive in your practice. So that can look a lot of different ways in behavioral health and, um, and primary care. Um, for for medical settings, and I think it goes all the way from the the person sitting at the front desk to the forms that are used to the assessments and to the clinical intervention. All of the the language um, should be looked at, vetted, considered um, appropriate to the person that's that's sitting in your office. 
you know, Dr. Mendoza, you bring up a really good point. Even looking at something as simple as forms, sure. that can be a horrible trigger for someone if the form is not set up appropriately. And it could be just completely elusive <coughs> to someone who's just filling up the template and getting it out there. So thank you for bringing that out. Um, I have a question in terms of how do you coach the population that doesn't have as much familiarness with a gender identification? How should they address that so they are actually honoring the person that they're in relationship with? How do you ask a question that is appropriate and not um, triggering or judgmental in a way? What's an appropriate social environment to get a question out? Um, I think it is good practice to uh, introduce oneself with one's own uh, pronouns, so mine are she, her, and hers. And if you um, if you are being a good practitioner, then you're also assessing the pronoun that is used by the person in your office. You're not asking them what their preferred pronoun is. Rather, you're asking them what their pronoun is because we do not prefer our pronouns. Rather, we just are our genders. So um, I think that's... That's one thing we can do. We can honor people's names. Um, so a lot of times, you know, somebody will come in with an ID that is not expressing the name that they are that they are going by. So sort of being aware, asking those questions, I think it's just good practice to walk into any uh, interpersonal interaction and try to drop whatever assumptions you're making about that person's identity or how they choose to operate in the world. Wonderful. Thank you. Buffy, did you want to weigh in on this? Well, I love the idea of using someone's name because that applies to everyone that comes into the office. And I think coaching the front office personnel in terms of what their openness is and their understanding of what the purpose of your function in this role is and that everyone that walks in the door, you can be expecting, right? You can be looking forward to seeing them and you can show that in your language, you can show that in your demeanor and you show them by your welcoming voice and language and attitude towards them and using their name is such a personal way of inviting people into a space. And, and it can overcome a lot of physical barriers too if you happen to work in a more sterile environment your front office attitude can overcome that. But it's great to create a more home-like, welcoming, low-light, comfortable seating, socially but quietly private area for people to enter into because people are coming in vulnerable. They're coming in questioning whether this is going to be a good fit for me and whether the right questions will be asked at the right time and how do I portray myself in a way that isn't um, magnifying my current weakness or deficit or vulnerability. I, I want to appear strong enough to be able to be here, but also asking for help, which is a, a vulnerable place for everyone to be in. So um, being aware of that is helpful in the front office. Thank you. Thank you. And Didi, let's hear from you on this topic. So Native American Connections has a 70-bed residential treatment center called the Patina Wellness Center. And when you walk into Patina, we have about 70% of our residents are Native American, and about 70% of our employees are Native American as well. So when you walk into that lobby, you see somebody that looks like you. They're also in recovery themselves and have lived experience, and so they can relate to... Um, 
you know, the nervousness, the fear, maybe, uh, you know, being scared to come into this new environment for the first time. You'll see Native American art throughout the organization. You'll see indigenous foods that are served as part of the meals. Um, we have a cultural arts program. We have purposely used a Native American architect to build the Patina Wellness Center. So we have these healing places. We studied indigenous health care design in Australia and purposely came back and integrated places that make people feel well and healthy. Uh, we have a circular talking circle room that's just for ceremony and healing trauma where everyone who sits in that circle is the same and equal and their voice is heard. And we have two sweat lodges on our property so when you walk in you can see that it's a ceremonial a sacred place and it feels like a wellness center not a treatment program. A place where they can look forward to um, healing rather than a scary place that they might be heard about or been used to in the past. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Do you have another question for us, Amy? I sure do. And by the way, I loved how all of those answers tied into different things. We had the visual cues to make it welcoming. We had the sensory cues to make it welcoming. And then we had more of the, the formal, the forms and, and, and those types of things where people actually see themselves represented. So thank you all. So. Within the panel discussion, each of you talked about some best practices that folks can implement that can really reduce and probably even eliminate some health disparities that folks experience. So I was hoping you could share some best practices here that anybody listening might be able to implement in their work to really work towards reducing and, and eliminating health disparities that so many diverse populations experience. One of the things that I mentioned in the presentation was using validation as a tool to acknowledge a person's experience, whatever it might be. That many times we are not in uh, environments where we're seeing a person that looks like us. We might be seeing someone who's quite different than us. And in that environment, we need to be able to be curious in a non-judgmental way about their experience. We need to be able to bring an awareness of our own personal history and experience to that meeting and also validate that which we may not clearly understand. That our role is to seek first to understand, to investigate in a non-judgmental way, to be able to hear and see things that the person is bringing to the table that they haven't got a clear picture of. And validation is one of the clinical tools, but it's also an interpersonal tool that we all need to become better at doing personally and professionally to improve those interactions. It's funny you should say that when I, you know, before the days of Uber and Lyft, I always wondered what cab drivers thought of me because I would get in a vehicle, let's say in New York City, and it was like a, an interview. It gave me an opportunity to learn about someone's culture, typically, when I jumped in a cab. And I was very interested. I wanted to learn more. But that validation piece was so important to make sure they were comfortable sharing with me. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. And I still do it today. And uh, have made, made some friends. And, you know, sometimes that friendship lasts for two-minute cab ride and ten-minute cab ride, but that much fun. Did you want to weigh in on uh, this topic, too, Natasha? Sure. Um, so to kind of take off of something that Buffy was saying, I think that it's important to remember 
our roots as clinicians, behavioral health practitioners. Um, and so I was thinking about Carl Rogers and I was thinking about unconditional positive regard. And so what that means is that whoever you're interacting with in your in personal life, and you don't have to be a behavioral health practitioner to do so, but you, you walk into that relationship and, and you make the assumption that that person is doing the best they can right now. And if you make that assumption about that person, and that's the only assumption that you make, then it frees everyone up in that relationship to move forward, right? It, it breaks down walls and it, um, it allows you to engage in, in a way that is free from judgment um, and that is open to experience. Yeah, great reminder. No malice is being driven here, yeah. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And Didi, could you weigh in on this as well? So I think um, the, the health field and behavioral health has moved towards a single person not walking in your door for a single service, but that single person has a family, they have a community, what they belong to, and they might be seeking something initially, but they want much more. Maybe they're in, uh, they're, they have a, you know, issue with, uh, drug addiction, but really what they want is to have good parenting skills and a good job and a safe place to live to raise, you know, to raise their families. So I think it's really important that we look at, you know, the whole person model, the whole family, the whole community, mind, body, spirit of the person and not separate those things out anymore. And to really think, you know, the, that you have to pay attention to what um, they're presenting with, which is the critical first issue that comes in, but to look at that in a much broader context. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that reminder, uh, particularly, because it is that holistic approach that you're talking about that can, um, it might even be something that they won't bring up unless you have that curiosity that, that Buffy talks about, so fantastic. What do you have next for us? I have another question for you. So there's a lot of research that shows including someone's culture in care actually increases positive outcomes for that individual. Uh, we've heard a little bit about some traditional healing practices and some affirming practices, but what are other ways that providers can include somebody's culture in care to help them be successful with their treatment? Hmm. Well, um, I'm here, one of the roles I'm here doing is representing African-Americans, and I think they're typical to assume that all African-Americans have a spiritual life, because they don't. But there are a number of African-Americans that do have a strong spiritual connection. And so including that in your inquiry, in your assessment, including that in your building of community support, including that in... Um, reinforcing the supports that already exist and the positive intention that they have and how to help people navigate in those different areas. I mean, a lot of people might have the historical reference of spiritual strength or a legacy of spiritual involvement, but they haven't been able to enact that in their current life. And so helping people to navigate curiosity in that way to figure out where can I am bring that into my life and add that as a measure of support when maybe I'm not in formal treatment anymore and how did I continue that do you find that if there is a spiritual aspect of their life that it sometimes gets volunteered you don't even have to ask is that pretty common uh, I'm not sure which is more common because there's a lot of conflict around just sometimes publicly or spontaneously 
being spiritually minded. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that that's as commonplace as we might like or think. Um, so there, are, it goes both ways. There are people who will spontaneously bring that to the table to talk about, and sometimes mm-hmm. people are very guarded about that's private. I don't think that has anything to do with my my mental health issues, or sure. I'm not in that community, so I don't really want to bring that in. And and it's a careful. Um, conversation to have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and you you started out by saying, you know, I don't want to uh, stereotype. How does one really appropriately, professionally, not tap into a stereotype, but also dive into the cultural support mm-hmm. that you're looking? How do you how do you let that dance properly? Mm-hmm. Maybe I can jump mm-hmm. in on that a little bit. So I was thinking about. Um, what do you bring into your practice that's specific to the community and how do you while at the same time avoiding stereotypes and I think that for queer people people in the LGBTQIA2 community um, something that is important to remember is that often and I'm not trying to generalize either but often um, there is familial uh, family of origin relationships that are have been harmed historically right and so often queer people will have felt families families um, made up of people who they consider to be um, just as close as a a blood relative for other folks and so I think um, valuing a felt family connection as you would any other family of origin connection is really important. I mean, to to, to hold it on the same level um, as as you would for for anyone else, uh, because that's that's a common experience for queer people. Um, and the the other point I wanted to make about about considering uh, the culture within your practice is. Um, I don't think that we can underestimate the importance of putting up markers in the space that let others know that you're a safe person. Um, So for queer folks, often that would be a safe space marker in in your office or wherever you are at. Okay, brilliant, brilliant. And Didi, would you weigh in on this as well? Sure, I was just thinking about, um, here in Phoenix we had a boarding school, a federal boarding school for 99 years. It opened in 1891 and closed in 1990. So you can imagine how many generations of children were initially forcibly removed, losing language, culture, religion, name. There's a lot of Native people whose name is Jack Charlie because they couldn't say the Native name. They just gave him a name. They just gave him a birth date. And and um, and so th- in the Native community, there's a real resurgence of really trying to save the tribal languages to go back. And we have the Tohono O'odham Nation teaching culture and language right in our office building. And um, Navajo Nation is also teaching language and culture and really bringing young people uh, it's part of their identity they're still identified uh, you know as a, a Native American person to people but you know visually but they're struggling for what that means to them as they live here in the urban area and maybe had several generations of being removed from that from boarding school and so we're um, literally seeing this real desire to establish you know, they're 
what their identity, what their cultural identity is, and um, and the tribe's desire to really hang on to the traditional ceremonies, the language, and the culture of Native people. Well, and you bring up a good point in terms of culturally a, an obstacle that a lot of cultures didn't have to deal with um, for the last 90 years. And... Um, we could go on and on about that, but then there are new areas that we get to cover new ground. So this is an area that is constantly transforming, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right, next question. Sure. So we've also talked throughout the panel about some of the stigma that might exist for folks to seek mental health care. And then we've heard about bad experiences people have had, either being discriminated against or um, just had insensitive care, whether it was mental health or medical care. So for those individuals, how can we reach out to them to get them re-engaged or to get them engaged to come and care um, because, you know, they may need it. Um, we hear too many stories of folks who don't come into care and then have a life-threatening medical condition. Um, so what can we do to, what messaging can we do? How can we reach out to some of these diverse populations and, and get them to come in for help if they need it? Uh, we have um, Pride coming up here in Phoenix. Draws 30,000 people. It's huge. And something that I love about our Pride celebration is that there are all kinds of healthcare providers, behavioral healthcare providers, um, tabling at these events. And so I think that those spaces can be really critical to re-engaging the community. Um, for uh, the LGBTQ community, that's where they're at. They're, they're going to make um, probably some, some showing at Pride at some point. And so that's really an opportunity for Taros, for Native American Connections, for um, Indian Health Service, for um, what you name it, behavioral health care providers to show up at in those queer community spaces and be engaging and inviting and inclusive and just letting them know we're here. Yeah. Didi, did you want to weigh in on this as well? Well, I, I think, I, and, and I think uh, Buffy, you might have talked about it, but using different language, a lot of tribal languages never had the word for mental health or, you know, really it's a, the way of life is out of balance. It's not a disease, but a, a, a way of being out of balance and you need ceremony and support to get your life back in balance and so it might even be as you know not not using a lot of the descriptors that we use in the mental health language and taking it back to the language of the people themselves and they're usually coming in because they something's happened to them or their family member and there's been a disruption an unhealthy disruption and using those words of uh, in their in their own words of what they want to see happen moving forward um, you know reuniting with their child better language you know those kind of things rather than labeling it in the mental health language well, and I'm getting very clearly as the three of you are speaking, you're really underscoring the diverse population because um, you're giving just different examples that may not cross-pollinate uh, right, right in front of us. So, um, Buffy, I wanted to hear uh, from you on this. I was thinking about how us as providers need to go into other spaces. Um, I'm always amazed when I go into churches I go into a lot of churches and do presentations about mental health and symptoms and I'm amazed at the number of people who then say oh 
is that what I have? Oh my God, I need to see you. I need to talk to you. Even when I talk to pastors and consult with them about things that they're doing and educate them about, this is something mental health professionals do. This is a problem that's very common. Depression and anxiety is very common. But when it goes on this long and it has this measure of impairment, then that's when you need to get help and you need to send those people to help. A lot of people just are not aware of all the ways that mental health professionals can be helpful, even if it's just an informal conversation about, yes, that's a regu- that is an issue that is warranting attention. And I think the more we go out into the communities and into those different spaces and we talk to people and we just make that information very commonplace, people will show themselves to us. They'll say, oh my God, I didn't know that was happening. I didn't know that was there was something to be done about that. I need to come in and get this problem addressed. That happens a lot. Well, and sometimes people are in the middle of trauma or an area, and they're, as you say, they're not even realizing they're in the thick of it, mm-hmm. or it has a name of support that they could tap into. Very good. Mm-hmm. Amy, any other things? I just have one last question. The panel presentation was allotted a short amount of time for each of you to share your wealth of knowledge. So I just want to know if there's anything that you didn't get to share yet that you'd like to share about serving diverse populations. Any key takeaways that we haven't discussed yet? Uh, Well, I I did share something in the panel, but I want to share it here, which is the Let's Get Better Together conference is coming up. Love it. Um, So actually, I'm going to turn it back to you so you can talk about it. Oh, sure. <laughs> so uh, one key component that was mentioned in the panel was about providers obtaining education. So one way is to attend conferences and workshops. And we actually have the Let's Get Better Together conference coming up June 27th and 28th at the Desert Willow Conference Center. This is a conference that focuses on LGBTQ integrated health. And we're going to have over 22 diverse workshops and uh, keynote from another state and some presenters from other states. And we're just really excited. Um, The first day is an advocacy institute, so you can come and learn about how to advocate for yourself or for your family, uh, for your organization or within an organization and within the community um, for whatever needs you may have. And then the second day is the the keynote with the different workshops. And it's really a a great way to come and learn more about supporting and serving LGBTQ individuals. Wonderful. And what are those dates again? June 27th and June 28th. 27th and 28th. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Buffy, last Last minute comments, last thoughts. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be able to talk um, openly about um, issues that are sometimes kept under the carpet a little bit. And I'm encouraged that all of our professional arenas are starting to merge more effectively and that we can work together to reach more people. So I'm excited about that. Thank you for having us. You bet, you bet. And Didi, final thoughts? I think I'll just leave it kind of with the social determinants of health, that there's a lot of barriers um, for getting good health care, transportation, childcare, um, and healthy nutrition, and trauma, and all those things. But there are things that determine a person's Um, health outcome and we need to continue to work with the state of Arizona with Medicaid with other sources to really make sure that we're addressing and funding those other social determinants that make um, the improvement of health care difficult so 
just again, I guess I, uh, looking at it from a broader viewpoint and making sure that uh, we give people the best opportunity they can have to live a healthy life. Well, thank you for that. It clearly takes a collaborative effort from a lot of different sources, a lot of different agencies, a lot of different intellects. Um, I thank the four of you today just for sharing your gift of kindness and compassion and being willing to share your wisdom to pull together to make a difference in this community for generations to come, not just for the immediate moment. So, Amy, I thank you. Thank, thank you. you, Natasha, Buffy, and Didi. Really appreciate yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy.